Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep, King Thrushbeard. Uh, this is a Brothers Grimm story. I took it out of Household Stories, translation by Lucy Crane, pictures by Walter Crane. Uh, 1922 is the date on on this particular version. Beautiful illustrations. No, I within. don't think so. No, I don't think so. No, I think this is more like 1882. Oh, uh, the the book, the particular book I pulled it out of has a 1922 date on it. Ah, but but these illustrations are from the 1882 edition, and the translation is from 1882. Yeah, yeah. It's um, yeah. it's one that was in print for many years and republished, and people loved it. Um, you were the one who first told me about the Lucy and uh, Walter Crane translations. So if you go to the very first page of the book, um, Crane illustrator uses cranes to illustrate the opening pages. Uh, the it's birds, a, not the yes. earth-moving equipment. Indeed, this, uh, he, it's a little self-insert there, because um, right. there's there's no birds in this story. Although maybe there is, <laughs> there's a maybe thrush, kind of. Um, yeah. So uh, I first found out about this, as usual, through uh, Classics Illustrated Junior. <laughs> um, I love me some class. I when I first started reading Classics Illustrated, I'm like, I love Classics Illustrated. Then I found out about the Juniors, and I'm like, this is an inferior product. Now I'm obsessed with the <laughs> the Classics <laughs> Illustrated Junior, and I think of the the uh, uh, regular Classics Illustrated as the inferior product. One of the reasons is uh, there's a lot more space available for the Juniors to to explore the story with imagery uh, when you're doing a, you know, a classic novel and condensing it down into a, a comic book, even if it's a long comic, you're losing a lot. But in this case, we've got a five page story expanded into, you know, a 30 page story. Um, you get to spend some time with the ideas. Uh, and also uh, there's, there's this phenomenon. I don't know if Disney invented it, but now, whenever I think about Brothers Grimm stories where some kid is going off into the woods to find a wife or, you know, to get a horse or whatever the explanation for why some soldier is coming back from a war, you know, there's, like, opportunities to do things with imagery, um, like add uh, animal companions that don't add to the story's dialogue but add to the story's reaction. It's almost like a viewpoint character for the kid reading it. And such is the case with King Thrushbeard and this uh, this story. So now, when I I read it, I am imagining all the the sunsets and the trees and all the things that go inside. Uh, you know, it's just um, I think I think that's the the power of Grandma telling you a story when you're tucked in in the middle of winter and you get a bedtime story and you get to. I see these pictures in your head, so it's like a little exercise. And uh, I, I invite our readers to uh, to do that while Eric reads this story to us. <laughs> a king had a daughter 
who was beautiful beyond measure, but so proud and overbearing that none of her suitors were good enough for her. She not only refused one after the other, but made a laughing stock of them. Once the king appointed a great feast and bade all the marriageable men to it from far and near, and they were all put in rows according to their rank and station. First came the kings, then the princes, the dukes, the earls, the barons, and lastly the noblemen. The princess was led in front of the rows, but she had a mocking epithet for each. One was too fat. What a tub, she said. Another too tall. Long and lean is ill to be seen, said she. A third too short. Fat and short not fit for court, said she. A fourth was too pale. A regular death's head. A fifth too red-faced. A gamecock, she called him. The sixth was not well made enough. Green wood ill dried, cried she. So every one had something against him, and she made especially merry over a good king who was very tall and whose chin had grown a little peaked. Only look, cried she, laughing, he has a chin like a thrush's beak. And from that time they called him King Thrushbeard. But the old king, when he saw that his daughter mocked everyone and scorned all the assembled suitors, swore in his anger that she should have the first beggar that came to the door for a husband. A few days afterward came a traveling ballad singer and sang under the window in hopes of a small alms. When the king heard of it, he said that he must come in, and so the ballad singer entered in his dirty, tattered garments and sang before the king and his daughter. When he had done, he asked for a small reward, but the king said, Thy song has so well pleased me that I will give thee my daughter to wife. The princess was horrified, but the king said, I took an oath to give you to the first beggar that came, and so it must be done. There was no remedy. The priest was fetched, and she had to be married to the ballad singer out of hand. When all was done, the king said, Now, as you are a beggar wife, you can stay no longer in my castle, so off with you and your husband. The beggar man led her away, and she was obliged to go forth with him on foot. On the way, they came to a great wood, and she asked, Oh, whose is this forest so thick and so fine? He answered, It is King Thrushbeard's, and might have been thine. And she cried, Oh, I was a silly young thing, I'm afeard. Would I had taken that good King Thrushbeard? Then they paused then they passed through a meadow, and she asked, Oh, whose is this meadow so green and so fine? He answered, It is King Thrushbeard's, and might have been thine. And she cried, I was a silly young thing, I'm afeard. Would I had taken that good King Thrushbeard? Then they passed through a great town, and she asked, Whose is this city so great and so fine? He answered, Oh, it is King Thrushbeard's, and might have been thine. And she cried, I was a silly young thing, I'm afeard. Would I had taken that good King Thrushbeard? Then said the bigger man, it does, not, it does not please me to hear you always wishing for another husband. Am I not good enough for you? At last they came to a very small house, and she said, Oh, dear me, what little... Oh, dear me, what poor little house do I see? And whose, I would know, may the wretched hole be? The man answered, 
that is my house and thine where we must live together. She had to stoop before she could go in at the door. Where are the servants? asked the king's daughter. What servants? answered the bigger man. Answered the bigger man. What you want to have done, you must do yourself. Make a fire quick and put on water and cook me some food. I am very tired. But the king's daughter understood nothing about fire making and cooking, and the beggar man had to lend a hand himself in order to manage it at all. And when they had eaten their poor fare, they went to bed. But the man called up his wife very early in the morning in order to clean the house. For a few days they lived in this indifferent manner until they came to the end of their store. Wife, said the man, this will not do. Stopping here and earning nothing, you must make baskets. So he went out and cut willows and brought them home, and she began to weave them, but the hard twigs wounded her tender hands. I see this will not do, said the man. You had better try spinning. So he sat her down and tried to spin, but the harsh thread cut her soft fingers so that the blood flowed. Look now, said the man, you are no good at any sort of work. I made a bad bargain when I took you. I must see what I can do to make a trade of pots and earthen vessels. You can sit in the market and offer them for sale. Oh, dear, thought she. Suppose while I am selling in the market, people belonging to my father's kingdom should see me how they would mock at me. But there was no help for it. She had to submit or else die of hunger. The first day all went well. The people bought her wares eagerly because she was so beautiful and gave her whatever she asked, and some of them gave her the money and left the pots after all behind them. And they lived on those earnings as long as they lasted, and then the man bought a number of new pots. And so she seated herself in a corner of the market and stood the wares before her for sale. All at once, a drunken horse soldier came plunging by and rode straight into the midst of her pots, breaking them into a thousand pieces. She could do nothing for weeping. Oh, dear, what will become of me, cried she. What will my husband say? And she hastened home and told him her misfortune. Whoever heard of such a thing as sitting in the corner of the market with earthenware pots, said the man. Now leave off crying. I see you are not fit for any regular work. I have been asking at your father's castle if they want a kitchen maid, and they say they don't mind taking you. At any rate, you will get your victuals free. And the king's daughter became a kitchen maid to be at the cook's beck and call and do the hardest work. In each of her pockets, she fashioned a, in each of her pockets, she fastened a little pot and brought home in them whatever was left. And upon that, she and her husband were fed. It happened one day when the wedding of the eldest prince was celebrated. The poor woman went upstairs and stood by the parlor door to see what was going on. And when the place was lighted up and the company arrived, each person handsomer than the one before, and all was brilliancy and splendor, she thought on her own fate with a sad heart and bewailed her former pride and haughtiness, which had brought her so low and plunged her in so great poverty. And as the rich and delicate dishes smelling so good were carried to and fro every now and then, the servants would throw her a few fragments, which she put in her pockets, intending to take home. And then the prince himself passed in, clothed in silk and velvet with a gold chain round his neck. And when he saw the beautiful woman standing in the doorway, he seized her hand and urged him and urged her to dance with him. But she refused all trembling, for she saw it was King Thrushbeard who had come to court her, whom she had turned away with mocking. 
It was of no use her resisting. He drew her into the room, and all at once the band to which her pockets were fastened broke, and the pockets fell out, and the soup ran about, and the fragments were scattered all round. And when the people saw that, there was great laughter and mocking. And she felt so ashamed that she wished herself a thousand fathoms underground. She rushed to the door to fly from the place when a man caught her just on the steps. And when she looked at him, it was King Thrushbeard again. He said to her in a kind tone, do not be afraid. I and the beggar man with whom you lived in the wretched little hut are one. For love of you, I disguised myself, and it was I who broke your pots in the guise of a horse soldier. I did all that to bring down your proud heart and to punish your haughtiness, which caused you to mock at me. Then she wept bitterly and said, I have done great wrong and am not worthy to be your wife. But he said, take courage. The evil days are gone over. Now let us keep our wedding day. Then came the ladies in waiting and put on her splendid clothing and her father came and the whole court and wished her joy on her marriage with King Thrushbeard. And then the merrymaking began in good earnest. I cannot help wishing that you and I could have been there too. <laughs> I like that you and I are now in the story, Eric. That's important to me. Absolutely. <laughs> 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 I like that ending. Well, I'm sure we'll enjoy the food. I'm sure yeah. we'll enjoy the food. Yeah. Um, so I, I think uh, this is like probably the most um, easily like, – Hansel's Gretel's pretty easy to, to, to see. I, I guess it's very resonant with people. There's uh, Cinderella, which is very resonant with people. But this one, like, I don't know, maybe I was just that kind of kid. <laughs> this is the one that was like, oh, I see this as an analogy for me. <laughs> I, I'm too stuck up. <laughs> I need uh, to learn some skills. Um, and uh, and by being humiliated, by, repeatedly humiliated and having my parents upset with me, um, I maybe we'll come away humbled and be grateful for what I have and, and etc. Um, but there's some, there's some confounding elements to this reading. And, uh, one of them, um, it's a little unclear to me. It seems pretty clear in the story. I'm just going to read this section and see if you can help me out here. So this is, uh, on page 211 of the text. Um, I see you're not fit for any regular work. I have been asking at your father's castle if they want a kitchen maid, and they said they don't mind taking you. At any rate, you will get your victuals free. So uh, th this is awesome in the sense that she started off as the daughter of the king, and she had lots of servants. Uh, she's forced into a marriage with a beggar. Um, the beggar finds that she's useless at every task he puts her to, and he says, but uh, looks like your dad will allow you to be a servant in his castle now. Um, but we're told also that uh, there's going to be a wedding of a prince. Um, and that appears to be where she is when the pots fall from her her pockets or her 
band on her. And then uh, her father comes to the wedding of this prince. Like, what? Did, she's not marrying her brother, is he? <laughs> no, 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 no. So, I, I, is this like, um, is this important to the story? I think it's amazing to see her humiliated in the sense that she had servants. Now she is a servant in her own household. This is like worse than Cinderella's station, right? Um, she started off as uh, a, a princess in a certain st- sense, d- daughter of a of a family, and then that family is broken somehow, and the step family treats her as a servant. That's not that's not anything she did wrong. That's just how things worked out. Here, she did something wrong. She was mocking everybody, and she was her father's trying to make her a good match, and she ends up being a servant in her own father's home. So how how do you did this strike you as odd? <laughs> this strikes me. Uh, I read this as in perfect keeping with Grimm's, in almost perfect keeping with the entire landscape of the Grimm's tales taken mm-hmm. as a whole. Um, men are superior to women. That the the Grimm's. Uh, promulgated an extraordinary patriarchism. And even Cinderella, who manages through her hard work and obedience to rise in social class, only gets to do that because a man takes her up. Yeah, exactly. And he chooses her because she is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Same here. In, in the, exactly in the frog prince, when the princess, who is beautiful again, mm-hmm. makes a deal with the frog to give her back the golden ball she had dropped into the well. And then she tries to renege on the, the part of the deal that says that the frog will sleep with her in her bed. Mm-hmm. Her father, the king, says, you made a deal. you got to stick with it. Mm-hmm. I think one easy way to read this story is that the king is furious that his daughter is so proud that she thinks she can get along without a man. Mm. And I believe that just like the king in The Frog Prince, the king here is making sure that his daughter is going to do what men want. Mm. I think that a few days pass before the beggar shows up because the king and King Thrushbeard have worked this out. Oh, yes. Yes, so that when King Thrushbeard, the beggar, says, "You'll they'll let you be a scullery maid, a kitchen maid, that's, it's already worked out, mm-hmm. right? That's what it's going to be. When the word goes out that the prince is being married, the brother is in on it. Mm-hmm. There is no real marriage. It's, it's to have, I mean, there, a priest came and married King Thrushbeard and, sorry, the beggar, and the princess, but now they're going to have the real wedding, the royal wedding. Mm-hmm. The prince is in on it. The king is in on it. King Thrushbeard is in on it. All the men are in on it. Mm-hmm. Unlike the heroine in the Three Spinsters, whose mother says, you know, "My daughter," she lies that my daughter is my daughter is industrious and so on, and you know the the, the girl tries to to spin. And can't, but three ugly spinsters come and help her. And when the there is the marriage, the prince looks at 
her, at them, and he sees that they are deformed by their work, the prince says, well, if that is as it shall be, you shall never work again. Right. So mm-hmm. all she had to be was beautiful. Her lying is entirely forgiven. In this story, this is a slight difference from that. She is humiliated. She is forced to do what the men want. But there's something else that she shows here, which I rather like. The husband, the beggar, seems to have the right to tell the wife, you do this, you do that, you do mm-hmm. the other thing. Mm-hmm. And we need to live, so you're going to work. When it turns out that because she is beautiful, she can sell the pots, even just get money without yeah. having to give the pots. Yep. He disguises himself as a soldier to crash into the pots so that she will fail at that. Yep. What she has done is proved that she actually could live in that meager way on her beauty alone. But King Thrushbeard isn't willing to have a woman who is just adequately subsistence level successful. Mm-hmm. He wants a real princess. And a real princess, of course, doesn't do any work at all. She's just beautiful. So here we see, I think, a conspiracy of the males to keep the females in check, to make them be what they want them to be. But what the Grimm brothers are suggesting here is this one is perhaps worthier than the others, but to be really high class, just beauty. That's all we want. And that is supposed to look like a happy outcome for the princess. Never does it say explicitly that the father and the king and King Thrushbeard had concocted it to make it work out. And by the way, by the time this was written out scribally, this isn't oral anymore. This Mm -hmm. is by the Grimm brothers. By the time this was written out in the early 19th century, Romantic poetry had already established the idea that the thrush in Western culture symbolizes hope. Mm. So uh, one of the one of the ways I read it uh, that's not in the text, there's nothing in the text about it, is that she needs to learn skills. And the reason I think this is because I'm not a princess. <laughs> <laughs> I can't just trade on my beauty, Eric. Um, she oh, can. <laughs> she can. The, the, that line is so important about how some people buy pots from her and don't take the pots away. In essence, that's making her uh, – it's making her a beggar, right? She's got some hobo news she's selling or something, right? Some sort of product that she's selling. Uh, but people will just give her money for her talking to them. And, that is also yep. not what the husband wants, but she actually is good at that. Her hands are too soft for the basket weaving. It makes her hands bleed. Uh, she doesn't know how to cook or you know make the water go, uh, boil water. Um, she cries. So she's leaking all sorts of liquids <laughs> while she's doing this thing. And then she finds something that she can do, which is talk to men in the market and presumably women too, um, who are buying pots from her. And I thought it was interesting that they were pots as opposed to the baskets, right? Baskets you have to, you have to weave together. He buys the pots and gives her them to sell. She doesn't make the pots, right? So he's right. he's set up something, and and I think we can infer that that uh, her father and 
uh, Thrushbeard got together and said this would be a good match. Um, you do that thing that you promised, and I will uh, show up a couple days from now. And in the in the classic uh, classics illustrated version, the way this is achieved is he has a disguise, which is <laughs> he's got an eye patch, right? Never mentioned in the story, uh, but. Uh, at the end of the uh, adaptation, the pig that was the you know one of the meager possessions of of the beggar king uh, ends up with the eye patch and is sort of our stand-in character for the for the ending. Uh, I cannot help wishing that you and I could have been there too. And the pig's looking very happy wearing the eye patch um, and <laughs> laughing. And so we're we're all happy. Everything is it's a comedy in a certain sense. Everybody's happy in the end. But um, I had something like this happen to me when I was a kid, right? Um, my father died, and my uncles are telling me, hey, you need to, if you want stuff, you can't just, like, uh, expect other people to give it to you. You have to, like, earn money. I'm like, I don't want to earn money. I just want comic books. <laughs> Read them on the si- sidewalk. That's all I want. I just want the comic books. And they're saying, well, yeah, you know, that's not realistic and here what you should do is get a job uh delivering newspapers and i'm like i don't want to del- get up at 5 a.m well those are your options you can have no comic books or you can get up at 5 a.m and i, I was convinced somehow uh, probably through various humiliating experiences <laughs> <laughs> which apparently you have repressed right right well the thing is is uh, it, it is being a beggar Right? Can I have this? Can I have that? But once you, you know, you say, uh, I don't want to do this, but I guess I need the money because I want stuff. Um, I can't just trade on my looks. So I, I, I guess when I'm reading this and I'm reading it with students, I don't think that they think that they're princesses. Some of them are. You know, I have some students who come from wealthy parents. I was surprised that all my friends seemingly had allowances i i didn't get any allow i didn't get a monthly amount of money just for existing i had to work i had to get up at five a.m do this horrible thing uh you know it's hard to get up at 5 a.m in the middle of winter and and then do the work and then go go to school but maybe maybe it taught me something to be more humble maybe i'm better with my money now i don't know but uh her sin to me is just making fun of everybody and being haughty. And I think that that's something that princesses shouldn't be, but also just any person. And if, you, if, if I had a daughter who was, I'm better than you. Like I'll be the worst thing ever. Just saying that to her friends. Oh my God. I would have to invent some King Thrushbeard style situation too humble her and make her appreciate the value of just being a nice person and yeah you don't have to choose uh the person i say you're going to marry uh, the theoretical parent jesse right but you you can't go around making fun of people who you meet that's just not cool i think you're right I think that she is humiliated and she becomes a better person. And that's what I meant when I said this is almost an exact fit for the entire grim landscape. Mm -hmm. Because in Three Spinsters and in The Frog Prince, they don't actually do anything to become better. They just get it because they're forced to and they're beautiful. 
and then they move up and, you know, they act like princesses as they should, because now they actually are princesses that here, in fact, the person becomes better. One of the ways in which she becomes better, I think, is really very, very clever. It's the pots that you pointed to. If she had sold baskets, um, she could not have used those baskets to bring back soup. Mm. Right. Mm hmm. Pots and baskets are both receptive objects. Yes. Iconographically, they remind us of female receptivity. Yes. Um, But soup would fall right through a willow basket. It won't through a pot. And so the move from the baskets to the pots is a move towards something that is more appropriate for the nutri, the elementary function of the female Mm -hmm. in the patriarchal world that that the Grimm's uh, promulgate. Uh, And it's, I think, terrific that at that wedding, which, as I say, I think was just put up by the prince and the king and King Thrushbeard, at that wedding, as soon as she begins to dance, he takes her and the band breaks and the pots fall away. Right. He no longer needs her to bring him soup because he's been a king all along. And there's a little bit of a reminder here that for all the time that he has been living with her, she has not seen that he was king. Yeah. He has been living on what she could provide and what he could bring in. And so what we really have here is the men know best because they have taken the woman she is not just beautiful. They've molded her into what is a real wife. And of course, if you're the wife of a king, you don't have to work. It's a very interesting story. It continues the patriarchy, but it does actually give us some morals that we might want to hang on to a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I think that that complexity between the simple male-female roles and this this extra moral complexity um, – it's not like it was self-generated. You know, Cinderella is obedient. Mm-hmm. Right? This woman is not obedient. She keeps having to be pushed into it. Yeah. Um, this is this is an uh, this is a little bit odd in the Grimm canon, but I think for that reason, all the more valuable because when you read this and you think about how it fits with everything else, as well as what the story means, for instance, to someone who had to get up at five o'clock in the morning, mm. you find. There's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.com.